Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian Dean McCain. We've got a great show for you. Uh, we're just starting the legislative session, started on Monday, and we've got uh, the amazing, and I'm a big fan of uh, our of our guest today, Garen Vorthman, and we'll get to her in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to tell you a couple of things. If you watched the 100th episode that we did with Colorado Farm Bureau, uh, that was our last episode. I just wanted to let you know that uh, at the end of that, we were doing a giveaway for a luncheon with uh, with <laughs> with Brian. And uh, Rick Klein is the one who won it, which is interesting because we said that the first person that called and let us know that they listened to the show in its entirety, and it was Rick Klein. So, of course, he is the most amazing board chair that we have for Action 22, and we're a big fan of his. Uh, At the end of the show, we're going to give you, if you're a longtime listener, we're going to give you an update on the heads. So, wait a second. So, do I get to pick where we have lunch or dinner or whatever? Oh, yes. Either you or Rick gets to pick. No, I want to pick. Okay, you get to pick. I want Rick to cook me lasagna at his house and I'll show up at like 6 p.m., but he doesn't know the day. I'll give him like three days. Like between Monday and Wednesday, I'm going to show up to your house at 6 p.m. and you're going to serve me lasagna. Oh, Rick, did you hear that? <laughs> he kidding. wants your lasagna. I didn't know Rick no, did lasagna. I, I didn't know. I just made that up. That's my favorite food. I don't think. Oh, oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's lasagna. Why am I just now learning that? It it is my favorite food, and it makes my stomach hurt because I eat too much of it every time. Because of the noodles. Yeah, the noodles, the the tomato sauce, and then I just eat too much, and then I feel, like, really bad for the next day, but I don't care because I love lasagna. This is new information for me Um, because food is my love language, and I'm a little hurt that I just now figured this out about you. Um, We also have Voices of Rural Colorado coming out. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And um, we are going to be a week from tomorrow launching the Academy that we've been talking and you've been hearing so much about. I wanted to give our listeners a quick update. If you used to or you have gotten our emails in the past, I'm finding that there's a whole lot of our folks that um, are not getting our emails right now. And it's because um, the yearly it goes to spam stuff. So uh, please let us know if you're not getting our emails at show at action22.org or .org. Okay, so if you are not a longtime listener of the show, I have to introduce Garen as, and this isn't just me, but um, Colorado Politics named her as one of the most influential lobbyists in Colorado. She's an absolute... Um, warrior for rural issues and in particular uh, Farm Bureau, of course, but she understands in every way what the layers are of the things that we have to worry about for our rural communities. And on an interesting note, 
that gives her a ton of credibility with us. She lived for a year or two in Pueblo. So she, when I say that she's lived it, she's street not, cred. I'm not kidding, street cred. So she grew up in rural Colorado. She lived in Pueblo for a little while. So she knows exactly what she's talking about, but she's so well-respected and not just by us, but we're, of course, we're big fans. But uh, because her heart is for the rural community, for that ag space, and for all the things that that we've come um, to appreciate about what makes Colorado, Colorado. So she's absolutely one of the biggest champions that we have. And not to mention that she's somebody that's on our team or works with us that keeps us in the loop on the issues that impact and affect us here in rural Colorado and the Action 22 community. Like the, the best thing that I could say about Action 22 is that if something's coming up, and you may not know about it or something's coming up and you know about it, we have a network of people that we can go to and say, hey, what's really happening? How is this going to hit us? And Garen, you're one of those people that we call on way too much. You're way, you're such an important part of of what we do every day. So thanks for coming on. Um, This legislative session is going to be an an interesting one. It's that Chinese proverb that's really a curse. May you live in interesting times. We saw that uh, um, we're, it's going to be a big fight. How many, really quick, how many of the legislators that are, are just newly seated or that we are current, current legislators have actually lived and operated in the rural space? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I'd have to go and get the exact number, but not many. That's that's the scientific term. Not many. Right. It used to be exactly the opposite. All the legislators were um, ag producers and I'm not all of them, but the majority of them were ag producers and they they understood and operated in that rural space. And and they really genuinely had um, uh, their foot in both places. And those are days long gone, I I think now, Um, whether they live in a rural community or not, they're not. Um, they're not producing our food. They're not. They're not doing the things that really what makes Colorado Colorado. They're not feeding us or pe- keeping our power on. They're not feeding us or keeping our power on. Or and they're not. Uh, um, they're not really. Let's call it savvy on the bigger picture of water either. And that's not any disrespect to any legislator right now. That that's just. Making a point that, you know, they haven't lived it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Garen, we need a preview on, on coming attractions. And we did have, uh, our other, uh, a great teammate, Mike Beasley on a few weeks ago and the session just started this week and we had the inauguration and we're going through all of that. But can you give us a, a quick snapshot of, of what the assembly looks like this year? And then some of the things that we see coming down the pike. Absolutely. And first off, I would like to say thank you to Action 22 for inviting me back. I always enjoy the conversation with you guys, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what's going on up here in Denver. And as you mentioned, I did spend some time in Pueblo, and so I have a soft spot for Southern Colorado in general. Um, Grew up in Southwestern Colorado, but Southern Colorado has a soft spot for me. And so I always really enjoy the conversation on so many levels. So thank you. That's first. Um, And yeah, we got started Monday. Uh, It was a little bit odd because we're used to starting on a Wednesday, Uh, but they started on a Monday and it was largely due to uh, constitutional requirements on when they have to certify the statewide elections. There's a a formula and a timeline in place in the Constitution about when those statewide 
elections like governor, AG, secretary of state, they have to be certified. So that was in part why they chose to start on a Monday instead of on a Wednesday. Okay. So we, we started on Monday. Um, what that means is uh, Monday was largely uh, focused on uh, leadership elections. Uh, the Speaker of the House, the President, all of the leadership positions were elected. Uh, also, they did do. They went ahead and certified the statewide elections, so that's officially done. And then um, they focused on leadership speeches, and that's where the leaders of each caucus uh, line out the caucus priorities and the issues of what they're going to be focused on um, to move Colorado forward. So that was Monday. Tuesday was focused largely on Governor Polis's inauguration. As you all know, he was elected to his second term as governor in November. So Tuesday was the official kickoff of that. He was uh, the inauguration ceremony was in the morning on Tuesday, and then there was a bunch of events later that afternoon. It was pretty cool to be around. They did, I think it was a thirty-eight can, thirty-eight shots of the Civil War cannon outside here of the state capitol, which was really kind of cool. It was, and then that was immediately immediately followed by a flyover. So you know that was very cool. But it's always fun to see that and be around that kind of event. Just exciting. And the weather was nice. So that's always a benefit. So yeah, I, I, I got to ask a question. So um, he had a concert that night. Did you go to the did. concert? I did. Did you see? Or at least I was there. I didn't get the first band, but I got the second two. Did you see They Might Be Giants? That was the first one that I missed. Oh, man. That's a, oh, that I was, was telling the first Sarah, that's, it's like one of my favorite bands ever. So, oh, really? So yeah, I have to tell yeah. you the, my favorite part of the inauguration. And then I went down to try to go to the concert, and I, I literally drove around for 45 minutes and could not get into any parking spot whatsoever. So I just gave up and, and headed back south because it was already late, for, and I had early morning meetings. But um, my favorite part of the inauguration, honestly, were the choirs, but that's not the favorite part. It, the choirs were set up on the balcony that's, um, I think it's the top of the um, the house um, side. and uh, But the director was clear across the courtyard where all of the cameras and lights and everything were um, for all the media stuff. And so they were directing. It was such a far thing. They were so far away from each other. But I loved watching the directors of the choirs direct from clear across the other side of the courtyard. It was very cool to watch. So I was watching all this and nobody else was watching it. And I, I noticed, so I was sitting next to Adam Frisch and I said, Hey, look at this. They're like, Oh my gosh. So we all ended up watching the director while we listened to the music. It was very cool. It was very fun. cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was, I thought it was a great celebration of here's what, um, free elections are no matter what the outcome is if you like it or not this is this is what the vote was it's a celebration in colorado it's a celebrate it was a very great celebration of colorado and the 38 guns do you know why 38 does anybody know why 38 I have no idea i did i, I don't know that was a good trivia question i was wondering why 38 i'll find out next episode okay thank and you. then the flyover was obviously from the colorado national guard they were in the the national guard band was there yep. and they did a beautiful job and that flyover um we always have the flyovers in pueblo for the memorial day and the veterans day stuff but it was it was a low flyover i don't know what the i don't know what the elevation was but they were really close and it was a surprise nobody knew that the flyover was going to happen so it kind of shocked That's everybody cool. it was great 
Yeah, it was it was a fun day for sure. It was a fun day. And I didn't even see you there, Garen. Yeah, I was kind of on the periphery. Oh, OK. Oh, that was smart. I was off to the side in the, you know, in the we don't know what to do with you seats. We were they put us over there. Right. So, um, so let me ask you, and I, I want to give a quick update. So on, uh, by December 5th of every year, and I think December 10th with the new, um, the new legislators. And let me say, there's a lot of new legislators. What is Mm -hmm. the number on that? Remind me, was it 60, 40? Yeah, there are 12 new senators. Okay. And it's important to note that two of those are brand new. And have right. not ever served. Um, Senator Byron Pelton from up in northeastern Colorado and uh, Senator Marchman is they're new. They've never served. And right. then ten new senators, but they came over from the House. Right. So they have some level of of experience, uh, but just not in the Senate. And I'm not sure. Um, just today. Uh, former Representative Perry Will. Right. It, today he is being sworn in as a new senator. He's replacing Bob Rankin, who resigned mm-hmm. last month. I'm not sure if those numbers that I just said about the Senate include him or not. Okay. But um, that that's a, Either a way significant new. part of, of a 35-member chamber. Yeah. And in the House, it's an even bigger uh, group of new incoming freshmen, and um, there are 31 out of 65 that are brand new legislators. One of them is coming over from the Senate, um, and then the rest of them were brand new. Uh, Tammy Story uh, from Jefferson County was a state senator, and then after redistricting, her district changed enough that it made her decide to run for the House. And so she has legislative experience, but again, it's Senate, not House. So it's going to be an interesting uh, couple of weeks as everybody learns the ropes. And even though they've all been through orientation and they've been through training and stuff, it's still now that it's real and everybody's at the Capitol, it's it's a lot. And um, they're all their eyes are so big right now. I saw that. So (laughs) there's a lot of nuances that they don't cover in orientation that go along with this. Really quickly, we we lost McKean um, unexpectedly several months ago, Um, and I know that you had a, a really great relationship with him. He was so well respected. What do they do when something like that happens? How does can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what that looks like and what that happens when you unexpectedly lose somebody? And he was in leadership position, so this was a yeah. this was a loss felt by everybody because regardless of uh, what side of the aisle he was on, he was so well respected. He really was. Um, he was such a, a kind person, and he really built a lot of relationships and worked with so many people at the Capitol and he is really going to be missed. Um, I, I constantly think of him Mm. just randomly. I'll, I'll think of him and, and stuff. So it's going to be hard for a while. What ended up happening? He passed away at the end of October, right before the election. So Mm -hmm. he was on the ballot because he was a house member. And so he obviously was reelected. Um, and he was running unopposed, wasn't he? He was running unopposed. Right. Yeah. So he was reelected. And so they they um, had a vacancy committee that met and they put a person in for just uh, the remaining of 2022. And then the vacancy committee also chose somebody for uh, to take over here starting in January. So that's how that worked uh, for um replacing his uh, Senate seat or his house seat from Loveland. 
uh, in leadership, um, it, he was expected to be chosen as the incoming minority leader. Obviously, mm-hmm. that wasn't going to happen. So it was expected that Representative Colin Larson was going to take over that role. He did not win re-election in November. Mm. It was a surprise when we were talking a few minutes ago about uh, Senator Tammy's story. She was uh, moving over the House and she ran in that seat. And um, that was one of the many surprises that we saw on election night was uh, Colin Larson not winning that race. So he was no longer in the running to be leader. Um, so they had to keep going down the and, and that caucus um, is, as everybody's heard, is very small compared to what it even was before, which was already small. And they don't have a ton of people who have a lot of experience. Right. They're, they're a fairly young uh, caucus in the terms of a number of years that they've served. So um, Representative Mike Lynch from up in Weld County stepped up and is now the new minority leader for the House Republicans. And then, um, and I always butcher her name, and I'm going to have to apologize to her profusely, but Rose Piglise. Oh, yes. I would, uh, I would she, butcher it as well. Every time. And, and she's, yes. she's very gracious with me because I have to apologize all the time. But she was elected as, uh, chosen as the assistant minority leader for the House Republicans. She's a freshman coming in, brand new, newly elected just in November. So she's um, hit the ground running. Uh, she's got some government experience from being county commissioner and stuff. So she um, she's going to be great. Uh, she, but she, as a freshman, is the assistant minority leader in the House. So lots of switches and, and changes due to uh, the untimely death of Representative Hugh McKean. Let me ask you this, because for the f- probably the first time in a long time, um, the nation is paying attention to leadership positions, which we had the Kevin McCarthy, mm-hmm. you know, speaker stuff going on. And what's interesting, everybody was asking me about that. And there were things out there that weren't necessarily the truth, but nobody knew the truth of it. So how does one in the Colorado state legislature elect a leader between the parties, like in the House and Senate? So they, the, the entire chamber votes on the leadership. So um, what happened, and there was actually some fireworks, I, I will say, in the Colorado House. We knew going into the session that Representative Julie McCluskey was going to, she had been nominated by her caucus to uh, be the speaker. She has to go through the vote of the entire chamber in order for that to be finalized, but she was nominated. So we knew that she was going to take be the one that was going to re- be the speaker. There was a group of Republican uh, representatives that offered up a challenger. And in Colorado, it's one of the things that we take pride in is we, even though there are significant policy differences between the two parties. There's a lot of partisan battles that will happen in the next 120 days. Uh, But we always come together and bipartisanly elect the speaker. And that happened this year, but there was a bit of a challenge from a group of uh, Republicans who offered up a different nominee for speaker. And that really showed a divide in the Republican caucus because the leadership with, um, Mike Lynch, he 
continued, he carried forward the tradition of bipartisan support for the speaker, and he cast a vote for Julie McCluskey, the Democrat, to be the speaker, while there was a, a group of, of Republicans who voted against her. Um, at the end of the day, it was not that big of a deal. It wasn't like it was going to put anything in jeopardy or drag the process out for um, days on end, like what we saw in Washington, D.C. Yes. But it was a little bit significant because, you know, it, it, we tend to try to be bipartisan on day one. Uh, so that that was a bit interesting. And this, a similar process happens over the Senate. So. so it looked a little bit like what we saw in the U.S. Congress, but not with the drama. Not yeah. as extreme. Not as extreme. Not as extreme. Yeah. And, exactly. and the funny thing about that is nobody knew the actual rules. So you had congressmen um, and congresswomen like saying this for years. It's like, you know, vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker or Boehner or, you know, Paul Ryan. It's like, because if we don't, then, a you know, a Democrat or a Republican could be speaker. And then we saw in the past few weeks that that's not the case. And, and I was, I was talking to um, some people in DC and they're like, we don't know what the rules are. We always thought that it was like a plurality or a majority. And then we saw something happen that has never happened for at least, uh, I think it was like a hundred years in in the house um, electing the speaker, which is kind of important because the speaker is like third in line from the president. Right. And and it's a big deal, but uh, you know, they worked it out. They, they did their back and forth and stuff, but it was interesting from a, a political nerd to see what I thought, how it was to what actually happened. Because if you asked me this five years ago, I would have said that, no, if this person did not get the votes, then, you know, whoever had the plurality of the election would get it. Yeah. And then, and then there was another thing. It's not an official election, but then I noticed, no, it's a roll call election. It's, I mean, this is like deep in the political nerd stuff. Yeah. And we saw it play out, which kind of, for me, it was interesting because that's not how I understood it and not how I don't think Congress understood it. But we saw it play out over a few weeks. And I kept saying, forward. now, wait, what? Now, wait, what? And I would text you, wait, what? Um, and and then at some point I was like, oh, let's just nominate Dwayne Johnson. Can we have Dwayne Johnson? as speaker? You can nominate in the um, U.S. House of Representatives. You can nominate anybody to be speaker. So in the past, there were people that nominated like their dog. Or um, for like 30 years, somebody nominated Mickey Mouse as Speaker of the House. Is that the um, same in Colorado? I don't even know. Yeah, I that's what I was going to ask. It, it, does do you, the do you know, Speaker Gary? have to be an elected member in Colorado or can it be anybody? Can it be elected member of this? Does it have to be an elected member of the Assembly? And I am ashamed to say I don't know the official answer to don't, that. Don't be ashamed. I've never thought about it. I'll, I'll look it up and I will let you know. Yeah, you don't be ashamed like because no. we were doing um, the same I thing. I believe it has to be, but I will find out because that's... Because next year I would like somebody to nominate me for the speaker if that's the case. <laughs> well, and we or saw, Brian, let's nominate well, Brian. But, the, you know, again, you have somebody that nominates like Mickey Mouse or whatever. It's not going to happen. Um, but you saw... Um, Matt Gates um, nominate Donald J. Trump as Speaker of the House. And that was always the fear. Like, you know, whether you, from both sides of the aisle, it's like, well, we'll just nominate Trump as Speaker of the right. House or we'll nominate Obama as Speaker of the House or whatever. But that that was interesting because I keep telling people that. They're like, no, it has to be, you know, a congressman or a congresswoman. I'm like, no, they can nominate anybody. anybody. Yeah. 
Okay. So first day and um, everybody, all the leadership, they vote for the leadership and everybody, then they get up and they sort of say, our priorities for this session are this. What did that look like? So um, I, I think it, it's a lot of the same ideas and um, policies that we heard about through the election, crime, affordability, uh, affordable health care, those kind of things. I would say that um, in the Senate, they they talked a lot about um, affordability. Like housing affordability or affordability of what? How, yeah, housing affordability, um, health care affordability, uh, that kind of thing. In the, in the House, they were a little bit more focused on crime and public safety, um, reducing crime, addressing those kind of things. Interestingly enough, in both the House and the Senate and with Governor Polis, uh, water is a really big priority. And I expect we'll talk a little bit more detail about that in a little bit. But that's the first time that water has been such a focus of all three levels of, in the speeches and stuff. So it was very interesting to hear. That I thought the same thing because we haven't heard that and we've been screaming, water's a top priority, water's a top priority, water's, water's a top priority on not just the ag and the livability side um, for Coloradans, but the water wars that are coming, but also on that energy piece as well. So I was, I was happy that we're finally... Um, in depending on which water um, guru you talk to, we're really close um, to the to the doomsday on the doomsday clock um, running out as far as water goes. So um, it, I know it's going to, and I know it's one of the focuses that you have, and it's going to be really big. Let me ask you, um, what did you feel like the tone was? And of course, I'm going to ask the rural question. What did you feel like the tone was with regard to? Um, issues that fall in the rural space? You know, they're trying to talk about it. It's, we're one Colorado. We're, right. we're all in it together and stuff. I, I really felt like a lot of it, while it's important in rural Colorado, obviously, I didn't feel like there was any special shout out so much to rural Colorado. Um, I would say that largely based on on, on how the makeup of both the House and Senate has shaken out over the last couple election cycles. The minority, um, a lot of the members of the minority are from rural areas. Not, It's not 100%. There's a pretty large number of, uh, of the majority who's also from rural Colorado, but a lot, a higher percentage of the minority is from rural Colorado. So the minority in both the House and Senate in their leadership speeches, they really focused on being the loyal opposition and really looking and talking about how they're going to force the majority to come to the table and to talk to them and work across the aisle on issues that are important to Coloradans and make sure that their voice is being heard in, in whatever fashion that that can be done. So I think that's where rural Colorado's voice is going to be definitely heard for sure. Okay. And I have been, very pleasantly, and I, I don't want to say surprised because I'm not surprised, but it has been nice to see that there is a lot of reaching across the aisle, especially in this freshman class coming in between uh, new legislators across the aisle, reaching out to each other and, and building relationships early. Okay. And these are, this is happening with new House members. 
I was talking to a, a new elected representative for Northwestern Colorado, and she said, I have immediately connected with Representative Ty Winter from Southeastern Colorado. Oh, and yeah. they both come from rural areas. They come from um, agricultural, uh, strong, that's what is big in their respective districts. And it was great to see the two corners of the state already building a relationship based on common interests. And that has been really nice to see happening already. Um, it's so early oh, before good. we even get into specific conversations. So, And we like Ty. Um, we had him on the show and we've talked with him. Um, of course, always after the show, we have the a little more in-depth and, and probably frank discussion, but uh, really a smart guy, and he understands that rural space so well. Uh, one of the few up there that's an actual ag producer. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. When it comes to water, would you say that the conversation is based on internal to Colorado use of water, or is it external like how do we protect colorado water or how do we divvy up water inside colorado amongst the legislators i would say it's a little bit of all of that um there are really a lot of the priorities coming from the administration and we saw this in the uh, budget request that the governor released in december and then uh, recently uh, an updated request with some amendments came out last week um, that he's focused on putting a significant amount of money towards water in the hopes that and in the effort to bring down federal money. So that's where the bulk of the funding will actually end up coming from is the federal government. But the, the strategic efforts that Governor Polis is trying to do right now is it aimed at getting as much of that federal money as possible. And then how that money is going to be spent is, is where the real work is going to be done, right? But they're really focused on um, wanting to upgrade infrastructure, making sure it's efficient, making sure it's not leaking, those kind of things. But a lot of it will be going towards conservation efforts, expanding conservation. There's going to be a significant conversation about uh, incentivizing agriculture to use less water or more efficient use of water and keep agriculture viable. So that's going to be a very big part of the conversation. Um, We're seeing a lot of conversation. I think the governor is really focused on talking about land use. And while that is not just water, there's a lot of different things that go along with that. But one of the things that he's pointed to in his inauguration speech, and we expect to get a little bit more detail next week at the state of the state is, is exactly how land use policies can address the needs of Colorado. And he mentioned affordable housing and the need to get more, housing stock out there and water, water management, water, uh, the demand for water is big. And how do we uh, do that in a drought time, period of drought? Plus we're, we're, we're just in a arid state. We, we will never have a ton of water. And so we have to manage that underneath, underneath all of those constraints. And then of course, as we all know, we have the looming issue of our interstate compacts, a lot of focus is being talked about with the Colorado River, but we also have the Rio Grande River and lots of issues going along on with the Rio Grande. We have the Republican and we also have our, our I'm going to say our friends, even though they're not being very nice right now, the, the state of Nebraska wanting to build a canal in northern Colorado and take more of the South Platte 
river. So we're, we're facing looming pressures on all of our rivers. And so what we're going to have to do to answer your question, very long-winded there, sorry, Brian, is we're going to have to talk about how water managed within Colorado so we know how to be prepared when those uh, all those issues come to a head. So he put uh, in his budget fifteen million toward land use uh, land use issues. Um, did we do we have any detail on that yet? Do you know from the governor? Not yet. Um, the conversation that's being done is that land use is primarily a, a focus of local government in Colorado. We've always put that responsibility on local communities, cities, and counties to determine what kind of land use policies fit for their particular area. Uh, I think there's going to be a conversation about it. Are there parts of land use that should be better managed or better regulated or better directed by the state? And that is going to be a, that's going to be a big, big conversation. Um, We have so long been a local control state that I, I know that our municipalities and counties are not very excited about uh, the concept of, of giving up some of their authority or sharing their authority or whatever that ends up looking like. So um, that'll be very interesting. And that's on things like zoning codes, uh, density, uh, even permitting things like transmission lines and pipelines and roadways and those kind of things, all things that make a community thrive. Um, what role should the state play? What role should the locals play? And then what kind of of uh, uh, conservation efforts should be a part of that. It's it's a big conversation. Well, I can confirm that our our local governments are very nervous about that because yes. um, they're they're terrified of and rightfully so of one size fits all being applied to um, in the same area of of Boulder or Denver um, on Castilla County or Los Animas County. It's um, it's a big concern. On the water side, do you see that there's going to be um, a protection of prior appropriations? Uh, and I know that the demand management's got to be on the list of, of things that need to be done, but um, as far as, especially with the ag community, is, uh, is prior appropriation um, doctrine at risk, do you think? That is a very interesting question. Um, Colorado is governed by the prior appropriations doctrine, first in time, first in right, and all of our water rights are built upon that. Um, and there are a lot of interests that depend on that system. And it's not just agriculture, but that's a huge part of our agricultural economy is, is that ability to use the water under that system, but also our municipalities, our industry, everybody has built their, their world right around that system. I do think that we're hearing a lot of conversation about, well, it's for the public good and we need to do this because it's what's best for everybody, whether that's how do we get more money or more water down the river into Lake Powell or how do we protect the environment just a little bit more? How, you know, all of that is an interesting conversation. And I know that there's conversations about trying to do more stream restoration projects and that can be done for uh, environmental benefit. It can be done for a consumptive benefit. It can be used for a lot of different things, but to allow and to 
incentivize these these stream restoration efforts and not have them be applied to the prior appropriations and and the the injury standard in Colorado and that's a tough conversation and they start using terminology that makes a lot of us who've been working in the water arena for a long time get real nervous so I don't want to be alarmist and say yes that the prior appropriation system is under attack or is at risk but I do think that there is a lot of pressure being put on that system right now. And it, we all have to be very vigilant to, to know what's going on. There was an article about that. Um, I forget who it's from, um, but it was like, is water a right or a privilege? And that's the conversation we're seeing in Colorado taking place right now mm-hmm. and the United States and not just the United States, but Mexico, um, you, you know, downstream other countries as well. Like, do we recognize water as a right or is it a privilege? And with prior appropriations in Colorado, you know, it's a privilege. Like if, if you put it in the two, I mean, I mean it's a right, but it, if you understand what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, no, I do. It's kind of like the... Um, I don't necessarily like what you're saying. But no, yeah, no, no. But, but that, that's the conversation. Right. It's like everybody has a right to water versus everybody has a right to own water. But it's a right versus a, a privilege. And um, we were talking about that with some um, D.C. water folks the other day. Uh-huh. And they brought up a quote from the movie Hackers, which is one of the most dumb <laughs> movies from the 90s. And it was like, you know, it was something like, you know, wearing the outfit is not a right. It's a privilege. Kind right. of thing. And, and but it but it makes sense. It's like, no, I own this outfit, I should wear it. I own this water, I should use it or see how I see fit. And they're like, No, you can't. But anyway, just a side tangent. It was a weird um Zoom meeting amongst water nerds in Washington, DC that we had while playing games online at one in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> but, so I think- and water is really interesting because it becomes a value judgment. Yes. At some point yes. about how the water is best used. Well, the value judgment system, if we're going to use that same kind of yeah. analogy yep. that we've created in Colorado is the water court. Yep. And it's not a, most people, quite frankly, don't like to go to water court because it's expensive and it takes time and it's it's complicated and it it's a lot of work. But it also is where everybody knows that they it's the process. If yeah. we start allowing a lot of water uses to be outside of that system, even though it's cumbersome and expensive and difficult, then it becomes a, a value judgment or it becomes who has the most money. And it yes. just, it, it, there's no certainty. There's right. no way that we can grow. We can't protect our, our farms and ranches. Uh, we can't, how does the state of Colorado move forward without the prior appropriation system as, as our governing doctrine over water. It's such an integral part of a integral part of our, uh, of our, our makeup that it, it would be so weird to see how we could function without it. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because um, no water comes into Colorado. We said this many times on the show, mm-hmm. but you know, all water comes from Colorado. Colorado gets no water from anybody outside of mother nature. Right. And, and that's where it's difficult. And again, this is a conversation that's not only local, statewide, but national and nationwide as well, like outside of the thing. But 
we know how we feel about it for Action 22 area and our producers and our, our water right owners and water share own, owners and everything. And this is this is the one of the first times, as long as I've been doing it, where there's more attention on water outside of just the water people to guarantee the future of Colorado and the success of Colorado, specifically our rural communities and our ag producers. So there's two things that prior appropriation um, that I don't think gets talked about enough is uh, it's the peacekeeper with regard to water there, you know, before that doctrine, even afterwards, there was a, you know, when they talk about the water wars that are coming, you know, it's not, we're not kidding about water and, and those aren't, aren't things to kid about at all. The other part of it is it's such an integral part of energy production downstream from us. And that's one of the things, our entire economy is based on energy and ag. Yeah. That's, and those are very dependent on water right now. So any like pushback or any change in that system for Colorado, like that impacts our economy more than anything else. So, but water, the water system fails um, downstream. And I say downstream, I'm talking toward California. And not only are they out of water, but they're out of energy as well. And so that's where the, where it gets really scary, I think, um, for us. So I'm really glad to see that it has become a a focus on that. Um, Let's move on to um, what it looks, what the session's going to look like for ag. Okay. Good news is we're three days in now and it's fairly quiet, that is um, good which news. is always good. And we're not hearing a ton of issues right now. Like a couple of years ago, we knew that the ag labor law was coming from day one. So far, it's pretty quiet on the agricultural front. We do know that there are some issues that are coming. Um, the Pesticide Applicators Act is up for sunset review, and that's the regulation of the use of pesticides and, and people have to get certified to use certain kind of pesticides. It's huge in the ag world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's such a big part of our, our daily life and, and what we have to do to keep our farms and ranches running. But it's not just an ag issue. It, it's, it's important to anybody in the pest control space, right? Where everybody who has to control cities and counties have to control mosquitoes, for example, right. and those kinds of things. It's a big deal. Um, we've seen in the last couple of years some attempts to start uh, stronger regulations on the use of pesticides, the type of pesticides that can be allowed to be used in Colorado. Uh, right now, Colorado, um, the regulation of pesticides is done on the state level, and it's not allowed to be regulated on the local level one of the anomalies in Colorado since we're such a local control state, but it's, it's worked well. We know that there's been some talk in the past about allowing local governments to have control over pesticides within their jurisdictions versus having it be regulated by the state. That's not part of this pesticide applicators act conversation, but because that sunset review is up, we expect that it's going to be brought up at least as part of a conversation. So encourage everybody. If you've, um, you know, just pay attention to the pesticide conversation because it could be big uh, about where and when and who and how. So that's big. Um, we There's a, a lot of focus right now on veterinarian uh, workforce issues. Uh, we're, we're seeing a shortage of veterinarians across the state, and it's, it's really hitting rural Colorado in particular. Um, 
it's hard to get large animal veterinarians um, out. I mean, they, they, when veterinarians are graduating from vet school, we have a premier institution right here at Fort Collins, one of the best veterinary schools in the country and in the world. Right. Um, it's a lot of the veterinarians, they're more focused on more small animal veterinary care and not so much oh, on livestock. Okay. It's, it's just a reality. Also our, our veterinarians, they're, they're getting older, they're wanting to retire. And so we're just seeing a shortage and there's a shortage in urban areas too. It's not just a rural mm-hmm. issue. So there's a lot of talk about expanding, uh, professionals, getting more professionals into the veterinary profession, as well as um, uh, they were going to try to renew a uh, loan forgiveness, forgiveness program that was put into place a few years ago to help veterinary students pay off their college loans. So a lot of focus on that, which that's a good thing. That That's definitely a, a good conversation to be having mm-hmm. and all of the different kinds of possible ways to address that that veterinarian shortage. Um, animal welfare is out there. We haven't heard a ton of specific issues yet, but we know since the pause initiative from a couple of years ago, we're all on edge. We're all very, um, we're, we're watchful of animal welfare issues. There's a bill, a draft bill out there about horse slaughter right now. And horse slaughter is all, it's already illegal in the United States to yes. slaughter horses for human consumption. So they're, trying to bolster that up even more. So stay tuned on how that ends up looking. And again, that's not necessarily an agriculture issue, but because it talks about animals, yeah. the ag industry yeah. is very engaged in the conversation. So, that that um, was one uh, of the most desi- uh, like called in issues when I worked on the federal side was the Horse Slaughter Act. From the yeah, federal point, it's, it's a <laughs> we had we had more calls and letters and protests of that than any other issue for was, for like ten years. So it's already there's already something in place, but um, Colorado wants to like increase it. Yes, yeah, they okay. want to strengthen it. We don't have any facilities in the United States that do that kind of thing and that yeah. do that work, and so where the controversy arises is the um, horses end up going across the border. So yeah. it gets very complicated. And, oh, and I see, I see, I see. It was like um, a, a country, say Mexico, right. um, buys horses and then ships them down to Mexico and then they slaughter the horses for food or other products. And that, that was and that's the big illegal issue. Now? Uh, right now it's illegal to do that or it just does. It's a great it just there's no place for it to happen. And I yeah. do think there's a prohibition on it for yeah. Yeah. So again, complicated issue, but that's, that's a topic. Um, there's a a potential bill on trying to deal with, uh, feral horses, wild horses, and trying to address that situation that's been ongoing for months, uh, uh, all in a lot of different areas of Colorado. So, you know, I think we're going to, water's probably going to be our primary focus and our primary issue this year, but there's always going to be more issues out there about uh, the impact the ag industry and and we're we're going to be engaged in all of them so go ahead oh i I was going to say some of our members um emailed the show and they were specifically asking about um gun regulation firearm regulation do you see that as a topic i i know that governor polis said that he 
wants to look at the the red flag laws and why they failed in recent events, unfortunately, in Colorado Springs. But um, do you see that a topic of conversation amongst the legislators? I do. I think it's going to be a primary focus. Um, it's going to be a big conversation this year. And there's a new uh, gun caucus or gun control caucus, mm-hmm. and it's got a bunch of members. It's a huge caucus of legislators who want to talk about our, our gun policies in Colorado. I think there are definitely changes to the red flag law that are being discussed. And they were already being discussed. And then in light of the tragedy in Colorado Springs, that just kind of put a bigger spotlight on the red flag law and what's working and what's not. I think they want to expand who can order the confiscation of guns from somebody who might be in a place where they are not safe. Um, That conversation is definitely coming. There's already draft legislation about an assault weapons ban. So that's going to be a huge conversation. Other areas that I see of topic of conversation is increasing the ownership to 21 right now, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the age to own a handgun is 21 in Colorado. They want to raise that for all types of guns, uh, rifles, long guns, all of that to age 21. So that's a, one that's coming. I'm hearing conversation that there might be something about concealed carry. I don't know what, but concealed carry is going to be on the list. And then not necessarily a gun control issue, but one that is related to guns is there's a bill that's already been introduced about incentivizing people to not use uh, lead-based ammunition. Uh, That bill was introduced just this week. So a lot of focus, a lot of conversation on guns are going to happen this year. Yeah. The, the that comes up pretty often. Yeah. The lead based ammunition goes into fishing as well, because it, of, it, there are certain States, I think California banned lead ammunition for hunting and lead, and lead sinkers, for, mm-hmm, you know, lead when sinkers. you fish and, and that, that that's been coming up a lot in Colorado. And, um, I, I'm not surprised to hear that coming up again. Yeah. So far it's just an incentive to use other forms of ammunition. But I I think that's going to be an interesting conversation to have because it gets a lot closer to what California has done for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The only option to that is it's compressed copper ammunition, which costs like twice as much per Uh, bullet. And it's like, there's other issues with it. But the good thing with that is that you don't have to clean your weapon or your gun uh, as much if you use compressed copper. Interesting. So a lot of guys, or girls, they go to the range and they'll practice with compressed copper, pay the, you know, a little bit extra, a little for, bit extra it, for it, but it doesn't gum up their weapon as much. But as far as like hunting goes, that gets into a whole other areas like, yeah. you know, the bullet velocity, how far, and then the, the advocates against it say like, you know, if I'm 500 yards from a deer and I take a shot at it, a lead bullet Is will go, will hit it far softer, but compressed copper will fall apart and mm-hmm. may not do that but anyway sorry yeah do nerd more damage gun, gun nerd stuff do more <laughs> damage no i totally get that um garen one last question for you uh there's a trend um oh by the way before i get to that last question and i know you guys don't get into this as much but um there's going to be a lot of discussion on energy and environmental stuff as that's the other big one i think that we're we're going to get and we'll do that on a different show but um One of the trends, and this is my last question for you, one of the trends that we saw or have seen in the last um, 
few sessions and I, I'm asking you um, to help me feel better about this. Uh, and, but I don't have a hold out a lot of hope. You know, the legislature is, uh, uh, veto proof and virtually veto proof, um, on the house and Senate side respectively. The stakeholdering, uh, uh, the trend has been uh, a big move away from stakeholdering. Is that going to get any better? I think it depends on what the subject is, quite honestly, and what what the focus is. Um, I do think that the first five bills in both the House and Senate typically are the majority's message of what their priorities are. This year, they do absolutely fall within those priorities that they identified in their speeches. But most of them were not these big, huge policy ideas that are huge changes. They're little tiny efforts to address one part, very focused, very thoughtful approaches in many of these bills. So that was interesting to see because a lot of times we see the the wide sweeping big bills as the first five bills and that didn't happen here. And the governor is absolutely trying to take a more focused and dare I say moderate approach to some things. Um, He's very focused on continuing his the the agenda that he established in his first term and right. building upon that this time. So there's not a huge amount of big, new, bold policy ideas. It's much more about building on what they've already been talking about. So I think that is a good thing. That's a good yeah. sign. And and I know that there's been a lot of stakeholder going on on some bills. Um, we already had one where the stakeholder meeting got scheduled and the bill was introduced that morning. So it's kind of just depends on, on what the subject is and, and who is, who's the, the person pushing it, the, the legislator pushing it. I know leadership is strongly encouraging all of their members to do stakeholder work and to get that done before a bill gets introduced. So we're not dragging it out all year long and it's not this huge controversial fight with nobody seeing the language. So um, I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag on your, on your question, but it's happening a little. So hopefully yeah. it keeps continuing. So my last question is uh, apparently from the news that I see the United States wants to ban gas stoves. And we've talked about this a lot I had a in Colorado. So are we going to ban, yeah, ban gas stoves in Colorado or the United States? Or what do you think? Well, you know, I saw the, the the notice coming out of EPA, and then immediately after seeing that headline, I started hearing on the radio uh, headlines about how emissions from buildings are now a bigger source of pollution than emissions from cars. And I was like, oh, this is a full court press. They are mm-hmm. coming yep. after it. But then President Biden came right out right after that and said, we are not going to ban gas stoves. Like, I don't support that. So it was an interesting little um, messaging problem, I would say, between yeah. President Biden and his EPA. Well, was and it in there- Colorado, we have talked about it. There has been conversations about it. They, they have a new green energy code. Mm-hmm. that is was passed last year it's in the implementation and the the phase of trying to build that out right now so i think that's a big component of it um i wouldn't i don't think it's going to happen right now but it's going to continue yeah. to be a topic of conversation wasn't it the you know the dc folks put that out and it was like you were going to ban gas stoves or whatever they said and then immediately like 
right after that or right before it, there was a picture of the first lady cooking on a gas stove. They're like, hold on a second. <laughs> Wait, just a minute. It's just, it's just gotta, gas stoves. You for have to the, get your press people in line on well, this. It's a, it's privilege. I, I think that there's a, a something that has to be considered. If we're talking about affordability mm-hmm. and we're talking about making sure that people have affordable housing and Ener- the energy part of a house is a huge component to that. Yes. And, oh my goodness. And natural gas appliances, have been a way to help keep those costs low or lower. And I know we're all facing higher gas prices right now. Um, Our utility bills are very high. I understand that. And and that is something that we have to address, but it has been a a very solid way of keeping things affordable. And we have to keep that in mind because we can't ban all this kind of, part of our infrastructure and then keep things affordable. It doesn't work that way. We have to work together and it has to have all forms. We can have electric, we can have affordable electric and we can have natural gas that's cleanly. I'm going to say this, we are the cleanest producing state in the world. We need to continue to do that and allow our producers to do that. And then we can help keep our energy bills low and keep things affordable. That is a key component of keeping Colorado moving forward. Thank you so much for saying that. That's one of the biggest, uh, my, (laughs) one of the biggest things I say all the time is that, um, Colorado is absolutely the leader. We need to own the leadership on that. And it's not right on any, in any way, shape or form to pass that, uh, that duty on to other States or even other countries who are not going to do it as well as Colorado. And so we are the leader on, on clean energy technology and it is, I agree with you 100%, Garen. That's a hundred, um, it's an all of the above approach. So um, closing up here, I think we're about at an hour. Um, you said some positive things mm-hmm. and it's not all doom and gloom, but can you end us on a positive note? Sure. I mean, Colorado, we are the best state in the nation. I, I strongly believe that um, we are the prettiest I know we have a lot of friends and and neighboring states and stuff, and they have pretty places, but Colorado is absolutely the most beautiful state in the nation. We have so much going for us. And I think the Colorado way has always been to come together and 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 do it what find ways to make it what's best for Colorado. And I really hope that this supermajority in in the capital here in Denver really takes that into heart and to reach out to the corners of the state that are not necessarily on the front page and and ask them, how does this work? Because we can come together and we have come together and we will come together. We just have to be invited to the table. And so far it sounds to me like that is what the intent is. So I'm, I am going to take the optimistic approach and a lot of my friends are going to go, who are you and what happened to you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> blink no, twice if you're, if you're uh, under duress. Uh, but no, I'm going to be optimistic and say that I think that there is going to be a lot of collaboration and I think they are going to work with all the different uh, groups in Colorado and areas of Colorado. And Action 22, you guys do such a good job of making sure that people know that you're there. Because if people don't know you're there, they don't know to invite you to the table. So kudos to you yeah. for always saying, hey, we're here, because that's the first step to getting invited. Thank and I'll, you. I'll end it on this. You know, rural Colorado, um, not just the Action 22 region, but you have the West Slope, um, northeastern Colorado. We keep the lights on. 
we feed your family and we also fund a lot of the state. Yes, we do. Um, so we're, we appreciate you, Garen, and helping, um, make that voice strong. Um, I already said all the really great things about you, but, uh, um, I, I count you as one of our blessings, um, for our state and for rural Colorado. So, um, Chad Vorthman, I know that you're listening. So, um, a couple things. We have an update on the heads. So, if you are a regular listener to the show, um, you know about the ongoing discussion about the heads of the Espinosa brothers. Um, we heard from former Senate President Kevin Grantham um, just uh, recently he listened to the show and he said that the official report is that um, the heads were thrown into the incinerator at the Capitol building in the 80s. Now he said that's uh, the official report. Um, Brian being a little bit of a uh, conspiracy theorist think that uh, the official somebody report- has them. Somebody has the heads. So we just wanted to give you that update, Chad, and everybody else who listens. Um, if you've listened to this in, in, in its entirety, um, if you give us a, a shout out at show at action22.org, we're going to put you in a drawing for a uh, your free ticket. We're going to comp your ticket to the Voices of Rural Colorado. This is the uh, annual meeting that we do with our sister organizations, Club 20 and Pro 15. We talk about the top issues that face our rural communities. Um, that's day one. We're going to meet um, together. Day two, we meet separately, and we've got a really great uh, agenda put together, including uh, the Mike Beasley, um, tour of the Capitol. So the Mike Beasley Capitol tour only happens once in a generation, I think. Yeah, probably something like that. And it's going to happen February 3rd. And all opinions, etc., on making action happen do not necessarily reflect the board or members of action 22's opinions. We're not even sure that there are our own opinions. Yeah. So thanks everybody. We will see you next time on making action happen. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, XL Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.